0: This episode is made possible with the support from our sponsor, Vodafone America's Foundation. Vodafone America's Foundation mobilizes partners from all sectors to empower women and girls through technology, as well as support social justice projects.
1: I was 17 years old, sitting in an anthropology course, and that's how I had a flashback to what happened. She starts speaking about her research project, that it's uh you know, this issue called female genital mutilation and it typically happens, you know, by a female relative. A young girl is cut around the age of seven and it's usually never discussed after. Growing up,
0: Mariam Safi didn't remember what happened
1: to her. But during that class, her memory returned vividly. I had this out-of-body experience. The memories, it just triggered it. Whatever she said, it was exactly what happened to me. So I was seven years old. It was done by my dad's sister. At the time I was sort of jarred. Like I remembered even the color of the carpet. I mean, it was just such a level of granular detail. I've never blacked anything out, but this is the one thing I, I was sort of shocked. I blocked it out. And then the level of granularity of the memory I think is also something that shows, you know, how deep rooted the trauma was.
0: Miriam understood that experience as a turning point in her life.
1: If I can think of a singular moment that was sort of the watershed moment of trauma in my childhood that I'm still unpacking as an adult today, it would definitely be that moment.
0: This is Finding Humanity, and I'm your host, Hazami Bramada. Through personal stories of courage and purpose, our podcast puts a human face on the most critical social justice and human rights issues facing our world. In each episode, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action and together help create a better world. Stay tuned for a special thought leadership segment with Gratia Michelle at the end of this episode. The segment is brought to you through our partnership with The Elders, an independent group of global leaders brought together by Nelson Mandela. Mariam's parents migrated from India in the 70s. They
1: picked Texas so they could enjoy the warm weather and afford to buy land. So we have 50 acres of land. We have cows. We have goats we have um, at one point we had llamas uh, in Texas so <laughs> it's a very quirky childhood growing up on a farm but my parents are also quite typical in many ways they are skilled professionals who because of Lyndon Baines Johnson's 1965 Immigration Act they came my mother's a physician my dad's an engineer but they had this dream of having a farm in Texas they could realize that dream and so I now I'm very grateful for that childhood. Growing up, Miriam's parents expected her to become a doctor, like her mom. The assumption was that I would also pursue medicine because that is a form of public service, you know, sort of a high calling, and it's also quite economically stable. And I was a, you know, youngest child, just one older sibling, but always wanted to be a people pleaser. You know, I started college when I was only 15 and I was like very driven, took all the organic chemistry, biology, all these tough classes at a young age to be on this fast track because I wanted to
0: make my parents proud. Merriam's guidance counselor suggested that she take some time off before diving into several years of medical school. Merriam knew she liked to travel. She had traveled around India and lived in Europe for a year she decided to join the Peace Corps, a U.S. volunteer program.
1: And I thought, it'll make my application for medical school look better. I'll look more well-rounded and and whatever. So I did it in a very cynical way. Miriam ended up going to Jordan. So I thought, okay, this will be an interesting experience. I was there from 2000 to 2002. So overlap with September the 11th and the you know, beginnings of the Second Intifada. Uh, So there was a lot happening at that moment. And I think that's what made me realize that the world is a big place. And I learned about bias, I think when I was in Jordan and that, you know, everything is socially constructed and context is everything.
0: That experience inspired Maryam to broaden her studies in college. After the Peace Corps, she studied at the University of Texas. On top of pre-med, she majored in Asian studies and government. It was there that she heard of female genital mutilation for the first time. Miriam had a flashback to one of her vacations in India. During the summers, her parents would send her and her brother to stay with relatives. Her memory was one of a particular trip when she was
1: seven years old. My brother was on the other side of the room and my aunt had orchestrated this party for him. They were celebrating, he had finished part of the Quran in Arabic, or, you know, there was some pretext for a celebration. So he was separated from me. So I was alone. Like, I didn't have my parents, I didn't have anyone I knew. I didn't speak the language very well in India. They spoke a Gujarati, and they spoke some English as well, but I was kind of bewildered in this place.
0: That day, Mariam's aunt made her an offer
1: hard to resist. So I remember she turns to me and she said, listen, I'm gonna give you this big jumbo-sized Toblerone bar and a Cadbury, the kind you get in duty-free at the airport, you know, these huge things. As a seven-year-old, I was so excited. I was like, wow, thanks, you know, this is amazing. And she said, you don't have to share this with your brother. I was like, whoa, okay, this is amazing. I was like, I felt like I'd won the lottery. So I was on cloud nine, I was super happy. But for
0: Miriam to get the chocolate, she had to follow her aunt downstairs. Miriam's aunt is a doctor and her clinic was below the apartment
1: she lived in. I remember having to climb down this ladder to get to the basement, to the clinic. She doesn't really tell me what's happening, but she you know, tells me to remove my underwear, and I thought that was weird, but again, she's a doctor, so I sort of didn't think too much about it. Miriam's aunt cut her clitoris. And then after it happened, after the cut, I remember sort of blacking out from the pain.
0: Mariam had just undergone female genital mutilation, or FGM.
1: And the thing that I'll never forget, and this is I think what's, you know, shaken me to the core, and I think a lot of trauma survivors, childhood trauma survivors, are also deeply affected by this, is that we go upstairs, I'm sitting alone, she didn't comfort me or hug me or anything, She just sort of leaves me in a corner, and I'm sitting alone with this huge Cadbury bar and like Toblerone or whatever. I eat none of those today. I'm not a fan of those brands of chocolate anymore. Uh, But then she turns to my one of my younger cousins, who I don't know very well. She kind of whispers in her ear, and they start pointing and laughing at me while I'm sitting alone. My brother's on the other side of the room, so he's not even there, that I couldn't talk to him either. So I was bewildered sitting in a corner, sort of just horrified, crying, ashamed. I wasn't comforted. So that was meant to be like this piece of you, like your sexuality is wrong, it's bad. The term that they use in Gujarati to describe what's carved out of the girl is haram kiboti, which literally translates as sinful flesh. So it's quite clear that it's meant to be a shaming ritual. Female genital
0: mutilation is a practice that involves a partial or total removal of the female genitals. It is almost always carried out on children and is considered a human rights violation. Immediate consequences of FGM include severe pain and bleeding, shock and infections, among others. In extreme cases, even death. While there are four types of FGM, Miriam underwent type one, which involves partial or total removal of the clitoris. Other types include the full removal of the labia or obstruction of the vagina.
1: So with type one, it's the least invasive, so you're not left with lifelong physical. I mean, there are psychological effects, but less invasive than other forms. And so the physical scar eventually healed. FGM is mainly
0: concentrated in some regions of Africa and in some countries in the Middle East and Asia. However, the harmful practice is global in scope and transcends religion, geography, and class. According to data from 30 countries where population data does exist, more than 200 million girls and women alive today have been subjected to the harmful practice of FGM. And more than 3 million girls are estimated to be at risk of undergoing FGM annually. FGM is a complex issue because of a mix of cultural and social
1: factors. So in this case, they believe that it was necessary because this religious leader who's rooted in you know his ideology is very much rooted in controlling women and girls and is it's necessary because he said so and that in order to get married the girls have to be cut
0: it's important to note that no religious scripture prescribes FGM however practitioners often believe that FGM has religious support FGM is carried out as a way to control a woman's sexuality and sexual activity. Cutting is believed to reduce a woman's libido and help her resist extramarital sexual activities. Other justification is hygiene, as female genitalia is considered dirty and ugly. It's often considered a necessary part of preparing a girl for
1: adulthood and marriage. This was certainly the case for Mariam. So one thing I found interesting is that I think my aunt to this day, my dad's sister who cut me, still is unapologetic because she believes that in order for me to be able to get married, let's say, she did the right thing. Right? So she doesn't really see it as wrong. FGM is just one form
0: of gender-based violence. According to the United Nations, gender-based violence is the most pervasive yet least visible human rights violation in the world. It is a global pandemic that affects one in three women in their lifetime. Gender-based violence is defined as violence directed against a person because of their gender. Across the globe, women and girls, especially adolescents, face the greatest
2: risk. Gender-based violence has to be understood as violence that are committed against the person for failing to conform to social constructions of what his or her gender should be.
0: That is international human rights lawyer, Natasha Latif. She is the founder of the non-profit organization Women for Justice and Strategic Advocacy for Human Rights, or Sahar. Natasha works with human rights defenders to bring justice for complex
2: cases of sexual violence and rape around the world. Once a person falls within male or female and perhaps conducts themselves outside of these gendered social constructs, violence is then perpetrated against them to put them back into their place as either wholly male or wholly female.
0: Gender-based violence is a phenomenon deeply rooted in gender inequality and is prevalent in societies where women and girls have less power than men over their bodies, decisions, and resources. It can take many forms, including physical, sexual, mental, or economic harm. This includes domestic violence, sexual violence or exploitation, child marriage, female infanticide, honor killings, and female genital mutilation.
2: It's all interconnected between FGM to, let's say, virginity testing, forced vaginal examinations, rape. If you trace your finger across all that, the common thread between all of these types of violence is honor that resides in a female anatomy, and it's relative to masculinity it's always benchmark against masculinity. In the event of a person, the victim, behaving out of character, then the violence is committed very much specifically against key organs of the female anatomy. So you see a lot of domestic violence that is driven by jealousy or driven by possession, which is a quote-unquote male attribute. Those types of violence you'll see there's a lot of mutilation of the breast, rape, and mutilation of the face to disfigure the face as an attractor of attention that perhaps the, in in this case, the perpetrator doesn't want his female to receive. And so this is kind of the continuum of violence that women face from FGM, perhaps as an infant or a young girl, all the way into forced marriage, rape, femicide, virginity testing domestic violence. It's all a continuum of the same kind of violence that's very driven by an idea of honor that's residing in a female anatomy.
0: This episode is made possible with the support from our sponsor, Vodafone Americas Foundation. Vodafone Americas Foundation invests into programs that create opportunities for women and girls to learn new skills sustain their interests in technology, and allow them to thrive and excel. The organization supports advocacy and gender work for women in and through technology to elevate women's voices and create positive and sustainable change within their communities around the world. The organization also supports equality and social justice projects. To learn more about the foundation's programs and how you can support their network of partners, please visit Vodafone-US.com. The link is in our show notes. Different from other forms of gender-based violence, in communities where it's practiced, FGM is performed by a well-oiled network of women. It preserves community norms generation after generation through grandmothers, mothers, and aunts. While rooted in patriarchy, it is often a secretive act in which men are not aware of the practice. This was the case for Maryam. After the class that brought her memory back, she called her mom. She then realized that her aunt had performed FGM without her
1: parents' consent. And so I think she felt incredibly betrayed but also, you know, I asked her, what about you? Has this happened to you? And she said, yeah, it happened to me. It happened, I think, to my mother and others as well. So it's an intergenerational form of structural violence, and no one discussed it.
0: Maryam's dad felt especially betrayed because he had encouraged his sister to study medicine. He had also convinced his dad to lend her the keys to the clinic, the place where Maryam was cut.
1: And my dad was infuriated. He felt complicit in some way even though he had no idea and he couldn't have known that she would, you know, practice FGM after medical school. Like who would have thought he didn't even know what FGM was. I and mean, I think a lot of men have no idea because it's typically done in secret in a lot of communities only until I shared my story and others as well. This was about maybe four or five years ago. There wasn't a lot of awareness on the issue. Nobody knew that it was as widespread and pervasive as it actually is.
0: In some communities like the one Maryam is from, the practice has been performed out of the public eye for hundreds of years. The culture of silence around FGM is one of the reasons why this issue is so hard to document and address. The practice often takes place in developing countries. However, it is estimated that in the United States, over 510,000 women and girls have undergone or are at the risk of FGM. In Europe, 600,000 women and girls are living with the consequences of FGM. And an additional 150,000 are at the risk of undergoing this harmful practice. At least 59 countries have passed laws against FGM. However, in countries like India, where the practice is prevalent, countries deny that it exists.
3: The main breakthrough, of course, was the Vienna Human Rights Conference in 1993, where violence against women became officially acknowledged as not a cultural issue, but as a human rights issue.
0: That's Yakin Urtuk, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women.
3: Now, prior to that, we have the main legal framework for women's rights, which is CEDAW, Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women which went into force in 1979. When you look at CEDAW articles, there is no mention of violence against women at all. Most of the articles of the CEDAW convention deal with the public sphere, education, health, etc., etc.
0: The CEDAW convention, or the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, is the only international agreement that protects and promotes women's human rights. It is often referred to as an international bill of rights for women. Only six countries have not ratified this convention, including the United States.
3: The argument was violence is a private matter. It has nothing to do with a public convention that designs relationships at the public level. So, it took another 20 years for the women's movement to push for the idea that violence is not a private matter, but it is a political matter. And it is defended on a political ground which substantiates and reinforces, legitimizes patriarchy with laws, customs, traditions, etc.
0: The convention does not explicitly define violence against women. However, 14 years later, the UN Committee included it as a form of discrimination. They also made detailed recommendations to countries on combating and reporting it.
3: In 1992, CEDAW Committee adopted General Recommendation 19, which defined violence against women as a form of discrimination against women, and coupled with the Human Rights Convention, which defined it as a human rights violation, made the international legal order quite strong in terms of responding to women's demands. But this is back in 1993, and the UN tradition is that they first come up with a declaration, which is sort of a preparatory ground for a treaty. But until now, no global treaty has been adopted concerning violence against women.
0: The difference between a declaration and a treaty is that a treaty is legally binding. On paper, violence against women is internationally condemned. However, this does not always translate into practice. Even where laws to protect women from violence exist, they do not always respond adequately to women's needs. Natasha Latif explains why this is the case.
2: The main challenge with laws is that laws are inherently male, so to speak. This means that they were mostly designed by men, usually an unrepresentative group of men, who are so divorced from the realities of how violence manifests. So this means that laws just don't address the needs and the concerns of survivors. Laws are not taking into account of why violence are committed the way they are and do not respond accordingly. So you have Most countries that have general laws on the crime of assault, even the crime of domestic violence, but if it fails to understand how and why violence is committed, how are they going to address those root causes?
0: The second challenge, according to Natasha, is the reluctance of people in power to change those laws.
2: You have change being pushed, but huge, deep-seated unwillingness on governments to change those laws. Um, you know, for instance, when you're trying to push for domestic violence laws, you're actually trying to convince someone who probably has a view that domestic violence simply does not exist. Same for rape. You're trying to push for change in the laws of rape, but the person you're trying to convince is a person who thinks that by loosening the law on rape, we encourage promiscuity. It's a combination of laws being de facto drafted, designed and implemented by a very, very small group of unrepresentative people. And at the same time, these people cannot be unseated from power. Another
0: challenge in implementing laws that protect women from FGM is the stigma around the practice. It is hard to bring awareness to an issue when many survivors are hesitant to speak
1: out. This was the case for Maryam. I had no interest in actually engaging on this issue. It's gross, it's squeamish. The last thing I wanted was to be associated with something like this. It wasn't something I felt proud of, right? That I'm a survivor of this very gross thing. You know, that, that wasn't what I wanted to be known for. It wasn't
0: until years later that Maryam had to confront the issue once again. She joined the U.S. Foreign Service and went to the Gambia. There she met a Gambian-American activist who was campaigning in the United States against vacation cutting. That is, the practice in which girls born in the United States are subjected to FGM while on vacation to their parents' countries of origin.
1: The same way that Maryam was cut. I confided in her that, you know, I also went through FGM. And she said, oh, you know, I know that this is something that's much broader than sub-Saharan Africa, but unfortunately I'm the face of it. When people see FGM in America, they see my face and, you know, we have this big international day of zero tolerance against FGM coming up. The Guardian pretty much always does like a, a piece. Maybe you can speak up and so you can be a non-African face to this issue. And I said, oh, you know, that's a great idea. I didn't feel comfortable at that point sharing my story publicly. Nevertheless, Meriem became
0: determined to find a non-African woman to write the piece. She contacted someone from Pakistan who had written online about her experience with FGM. But the person said that she couldn't do it because of the backlash her and her family received from the community after the first article. Maryam then approached her dad for advice. This
1: opened up a conversation they have never had before. I didn't realize how complex this issue was in terms of the advocacy work and how hard it is. So I um, told my dad and my dad said, well, why don't you write something? You're a good writer, you know. why don't you speak out? And I said, oh no, no, I don't wanna do this. He said, but why? And I said, because like, it's, it's gross. I want this to end, but I don't wanna be the face of this issue. My identity will be subsumed by this. Like Imagine I'm trying to date somebody and like, they Google my name and this is the first thing they see. Like, or even professionally, I didn't wanna be pigeonholed as like, the expert on this issue of trauma. So I kept pushing back on him. And then my dad was like, but I don't know why you're embarrassed. Like, I don't know why you're ashamed. You didn't do anything.
0: This realization gave Maryam the confidence to speak out. In 2016, she wrote an opinion piece about her experience with FGM. In it, she noted that one of the greatest challenges in raising awareness on the issue is that many survivors are shamed into silence. She also argued that using a cultural or religious explanation for FGM
1: is problematic. In a time of growing Islamophobia, which I'm very conscious of as a Muslim living in the United States and living just in the world, it is a huge, huge issue. And so a lot of proponents of FGM, especially within Muslim communities, have used Islamophobia as a silencing mechanism to say, you know, just lower the volume a bit. They'll even racialize it and say, that's what's done in Africa. You know, like, just sort of this bad FGM versus, quote, good FGM. As though what happened to me, this partial cutting, was okay. Like, that's not so bad. So there's a lot of gaslighting that happens as well. People want to find ways to justify it. Linking religion or culture to FGM and
0: other forms of gender-based violence can be incredibly controversial, as Yakin explains.
3: FGM has been targeted in the past as something only specific to certain cultures. The practice itself, maybe, but what it represents, control over women, is quite general. But when we isolate issues as cultural issues, we fail to see the underlying linkages of trying to subdue women. And most often, this kind of uh, approach justifies the existing power structures, We need to dig beneath these cultural explanations to see who is promoting, whose interests are being rationalized, and what issues are being covered over when we talk about culture. Most often, underneath, there are serious political, economic, class interests that are represented as cultural phenomena we need to demystify the cultural facade that is put on top of these kinds of practices, uh, which uh, try to excuse transgressions on women's bodies, such as in FGM. The FGM phenomenon is the same thing. Is it cultural or is it a way of controlling women's sexuality? Unless we ask these kinds of hard questions, We tend to take hands off and say, oh, but this is their culture. And of course, religion also comes into the picture. When it's put in a religious framework, it's even more alarming because it gains an untouchability by itself. You know, you're not supposed to criticize religion. But whose understanding of religion is it?
0: Maryam became an advocate against FGM. But she, like many other
1: survivors, had to deal with the consequences. The survivors have to deal with the blowback, right, of the backlash of their family, of, you know, the conversations. I mean, it's not all rainbows and roses. I have amazing parents. My goodness, I'm so lucky. But some extended family are a little more ambivalent. I lose the intimacy of relationships with family members. You know, Thanksgiving is awkward. You know, all these things that I used to love growing up, as I've become a public advocate, I realize now there's a cost. I don't have those same relationships I've had with people I grew up with. And I think that's one of the hardest parts of this is that a lot of your friends, a lot of your family are just not willing to sort of be in solidarity with you. And for me, it's so baffling because it's such an egregious thing. It's so awful. How could anyone not be horrified by this and want this to end? And I think it's because it's such a shameful practice. For survivors,
0: coming forward with their stories often means that they will be stigmatized in their communities.
2: I think conversations need to be had around stigma. And this means understanding how stigma operates as a goal of perpetrators. That's Natasha Latif again. In FGM, in virginity testing and rape. These crimes are committed because stigma exists. These crimes are committed with the goal of stigmatizing. And so we need to re understand the role of stigma in these situations. Uh, survivor cannot seek justice on their own. If they have been subjected to FGM, the strong likelihood is that the community will not permit them to speak out against it. So our job is then to think about how can we mediate the issue of shame with the community? How can we integrate elders in the community, leaders in the community, to support our work in terms of pursuing justice?
0: But when it comes to survivors of gender-based violence, this can be incredibly complicated.
2: We have victims and witnesses who are traumatized, but they're also at risk of personal violence. So, you know, we've experienced the need to relocate these victims and witnesses. And sometimes even with relocation, they are hunted down and they're attacked. Sometimes, honestly, it is a hopeless situation. There's some occasions where we just advise the survivors, disengage yourself from this case because it's getting too dangerous. Even if the fight is noble, it's great, it's honorable these cases don't always end up with a good consequence or good result and so we just work with what we have And If we cannot cause a perpetrator to be arrested because of protection that community gives him for the offences that he's committed or state is unwilling, then at least let's name and shame the perpetrator. That might deter them from committing further harms and that sends a message to the public as well.
0: For this reason, we need an integrated system that protects survivors of gender-based violence.
2: The change has to happen at all levels simultaneously. So you have very large organizations that are working with embassies and ensuring that the politics of things and foreign policy is geared towards safeguarding women and other vulnerable communities from violence. That needs to take place. And then at the very basic level and that's level of community and really starting from primary education change also needs to take place there we can't choose where we contest violence violence need to be contested at every level and what's more important is how those levels are then coordinating with each other meaning how are embassies talking to the state how is the state talking to the survivor how is the survivor talking to the perpetrators these connections must happen to deal with individual cases. Maryam
0: believes that expanding access to mental health services is also essential to protect survivors.
1: So there needs to be investments on not just the physical health care of, you know, looking at maternal mortality or some of the other issues that are consequences of FGM, but really focusing on mental health, especially in communities where there isn't a culture or there isn't access. Maybe it's just, it's not affordable, so people can't go. So making it more accessible for the communities and in particular, the survivors. This is especially important for survivors sharing their stories. Pushing survivors to their outer limits to get this product, which is a story, sure, that can potentially break the silence and change the narrative, but at what cost to the survivor? It's important to both raise awareness on the issue, but also to invest in this healing and the trauma-informed recovery, because that's the one thing I've seen that gets shortchanged.
0: Survivors also have a role to play in the policymaking
1: process. And if we're really focusing on survivor-centered, survivor-informed movements, then we need to do more than just put them on panels as props to you know, validate an issue or have their stories unearthed so that we can all cry about it. One thing is to continue amplifying the stories of survivors, but going beyond amplification and integrating survivors into policy processes, the multilateral level, at the community level, at all levels. So making sure that women have a seat at the table, especially those that are affected by this particular practice.
0: As a survivor and a diplomat, Meriam has
1: some suggestions to end the practice of FGM. Each country is different. So within each country, communities are quite different. The drivers all vary. I mean, the common architecture is this is a form of structural violence rooted in power, rooted in control, much like other forms of gender-based violence. Whether it's the justifications are, you know, cultural, religious, or other, that's something that, you know, each solution, quote-unquote, or intervention needs to be evidence-based and informed by the context and by the people affected. So I would say have it be contextual. And also, I think we need more data collection on this. So I would say investing in the data, investing in the survivors themselves, and also investing in the mental health as well of the communities, holistically.
0: Maryam continues to advocate to end FGM for future generations.
1: My biggest inspiration is my niece. She's uh, 10 years old, her name is Zara, and my niece reminds me a lot of myself. So she's very loud and artistic and sassy and confident. And I realized, you know, before I was cut, I was a lot like her, just very boisterous and just kind of inquisitive and curious and just free. After I was cut, that all shattered. It wasn't just cutting off a piece of my body, right? It was about crushing my spirit. In addition to my father nudging along them, bolstering me to have the confidence to speak out, I think my niece was the one who really drove me to do it because I understood in that moment with her and seeing her beautiful, just free self, that I lost that when my aunt cut me. So I didn't want that to happen to her or any other girl anywhere in the world.
0: Protecting the rights of women and girls and investing into opportunities to enable them to thrive is critical. I discuss the importance of women's empowerment in this special segment with Graca Michelle. Graca is a former freedom fighter, international advocate for women and children's rights, and is a founding member of The Elders, founded alongside her husband, Nelson Mandela. The
4: empowerment of women and girls has a multiplying effect. Whenever you have an empowered girl, an empowered adolescent, empowered woman, it has a multiplying effect in her own life in terms of uh, the bursting of uh, energy and creativity and talents which comes with it. But then it invests in their families. Their families are much better. They are much smaller. They have a better quality of life because they can take control of what their families are. They can choose the profession they want. If they are empowered, they will be able to give the best of their talent, of their gifts, of the ability to innovate. And this has a positive impact, not only in the sector where they are, but globally, it has this multiplying effect.
0: Here, Grasa talks about how empowering women can be a tool to end poverty, which is one of the sustainable development goals launched at the United Nations in 2015.
4: If you have educated women, you will see the impact of how they definitely improve, for instance, agriculture, and how they improve the health of themselves and the health of their families. So poverty definitely will be eradicated if women are empowered to end hunger quality of education. All these are just examples that get girls and women totally engaged and giving the best of their capacity and potential. These goals can be achieved. But what we should also remember, it's not only because women are useful. It's because it's their right. They are human beings and they have absolutely the same rights as anyone. You can measure the impact in society, you can measure the impact in economy, but at the same time, we should never forget that it's about their dignity, their human dignity, which should never be put in a second position.
0: And as we're looking forward, how can we, as a society, do more to invest into women and girls?
4: To invest in, I'll say, women, adolescents, and girls and I do this deliberately it's because how you invest on a child until for instance age of 9 10 is one way when you are investing in uh, an adolescent from 10 to 17 you need to readjust your strategies and when it's young women adult women it's another kind of approach so i will say With children, those who are really small, we have to begin to invest in girls from the time they're being born. In many societies, when it's a girl, the investment of the family is not as complete as it would be for a boy. So, investing in them is to accept that this child, who happens to be female, is a human being and full as any other child that might happen to be a boy. There are many girls out there who simply do not go to school because parents choose to invest on boys instead of girls. But all girls should be given the opportunity to attend school and to have quality education. And while they are there, to be stimulated, to be encouraged, to be bright. I mean, to face mathematics. And physics and chemistry, all these as normal things which are not only for boys, but they are for girls from the primary school, by the way. We need to look at what is the age of this child and how you invest better to give her the same, absolutely the same opportunities as boys. And when they are adolescent, you know, adolescence is a period in which sometimes need specific guidance of how to look at himself and herself, in this case as a girl, I mean, to look at her body, the transformations which are taking place in her own body. How does she own this? And to understand that it's a simply normal process of growing and not to have too much anxiety about it. If we invest properly on adolescents, we'll break what we call the cycle of poverty. To have a different quality of young women, who will be totally comfortable with themselves. They will accept themselves fully.
0: Finally, Grasa shares sectors we should look at when looking for opportunities to invest in women.
4: It is uh, an indictment for us to still have very high rates of women who are illiterate. How can we accept that in the 21st century we still have the hosts of women who can't read and write. When they need a doctor prescription, they have to ask somebody to interpret for them. Illiteracy is totally, totally unacceptable. We should invest in that. Health, for instance. How many women in the developing world, I mean, the global South, simply cannot have assets to family planning means so that she can decide that instead of having seven five children. She only wants to have one. She only has to have two. And because this is what she can afford, how can we still accept that we have women who have to walk long distances just to fetch water? So investing in women, particularly in the global South, it's precisely to eradicate those huge limitations which absorb a woman just to the level of survival and cannot leave fully because she hasn't simply had the time and the means to do so. But I wanted to insist on in investment on women is uh, science. We still have very few women who are really doing extremely well in science. Although you have those who are stars and they are examples of what can be achieved, but we need to invest massively in providing opportunities for young women to be shining in science. Why? Because they'll be part of uh, breaking the ceiling and to invest in innovation. They will be able to bring solutions to all the problems our societies still are facing. Women have to take a prominent space in that field.
0: Investing in the rights of women and girls is fundamental to the creation of a healthy and thriving society. While we've made a lot of progress on gender equality over the last decade, we still have a long way to go in ensuring that the rights of women and girls around the world are protected. Gender-based violence, whether sexual, emotional, or psychological, impact the lives of countless women and their families, many of whom suffer in silence, and face stigma for speaking out and seeking help. This pandemic affects one in three women in their lifetime. That number is jarring. We hope that this episode gave you insight into the long-standing impacts of gender-based violence on women and girls and our society at large. While many policymakers and politicians have been quick to profess support for survivors and reject all forms of gender-based violence, concrete legislative action and social support to address these issues has been slow and ineffective. Through our podcast, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action. There are many ways to take action. Here are just a few suggestions. Speak out against discrimination or inequality to help ensure that women and men, girls and boys, enjoy the same rights, resources, opportunities, and protections. You have a role to play in holding organizations, people, and policymakers accountable. When you see inequality, say something. Second, support activists and advocates like Mariam Look up their work, learn about their stories, amplify their messages and support their advocacy. And lastly, talk to young boys and men about the importance of protecting the rights of women and girls. We need to shift the culture that supports violence against women, starting from a young age. This includes educating boys about sexual harassment, slut-shaming, and normalizing violence against women. You have the power to create real change. To learn more about this episode, check out the links to resources on our show notes and on our website, FindingHumanityPodcast.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you've enjoyed Finding Humanity, please share it and leave us a review. To learn more about topics in our podcast and other opportunities to engage with us, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Find underscore Humanity, and on Facebook at Finding Humanity Podcast. In our podcast, we cover pressing and at times controversial social and political issues. The views and opinions expressed are those of the interviewees and do not reflect the positions or opinions of the producers or any affiliated organizations. Finding Humanity is a joint production of the Humanity Lab Foundation and Human Group Media. This season is made possible in part by our collaborating partner, The Elders. While this series is produced in collaboration with our partner, The Elders did not exercise any editorial discretion on this episode. Our executive producer is Camille Lorente. Associate producer is Fernanda Oriegas. Assistant producer is Diana Galbraith. Associate production, policy, and research by Martina Vanat, Aisha Amin, and Carolina Mendica. Mixing, editing, and music by Maverick Aquino. For this episode, I'd like to thank our experts, Natasha Latif, Professor Yakin Urturk, and Gassa Michelle. We would also like to thank our partner for this episode, Vodafone America's Foundation. I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.